Let's just, just a little bit. A little bit unique from the other Sundays that we spend together. Um, there's something not just to, to us in this room or to the church as a whole that is special about this day. This day is unique. There, there's really twice a year um, that the, the world outside the church can't help but take notice about what's happening inside the church. And that is today and kind of Christmas. But I would argue that Christmas in a way has been kind of co-opted in the secular world. Right? There's a lot of people that celebrate Christmas without giving much of a, a second thought to what happened on that night. But Easter is this unique time. You know, we, we've got bunnies and we've got all these little things. But there's, there's a weird obsession that the culture has with the church and Christianity around this time. And, and I'll tell you, it's every single year. Um, if, you, if you right now go home, and I would encourage you, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't encourage you to do this, but if you go home and you start to look up documentaries around this time, there's something you're going to find almost every year. And it is, it's going to be on Discovery Channel or History Channel or one of those kind of guys. Now in the world we live in, it can go on something like Amazon Prime or Netflix or even YouTube. But you're going to see some kind of document, documentary come out that refutes an aspect of the resurrection of Jesus. It's without fail. And it's always produced by some like high-powered dude, like a James Cameron or a Bill O'Reilly or, or someone right that, that has a director of caliber. It's super dramatized. It's really good and well done and compelling to watch. But it's absolute manure. And every year they come out. Archaeologists have found the tomb and body of Jesus. If I had a dime for every time... It's weird, like the archaeologists happen to find it right around Easter every year. Not like in November, but they, they air these things right, right around this time. Because for as long as the resurrection has been a fact, so has been the disputing of it. I'll give you just a couple, okay? This is, uh, this is no joke. 2005, The God Who Wasn't There by Brian Fleming. 2007, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. We lost the tomb of Jesus, in case you didn't know. 2008, bloodline. This one's fun. Jesus married Mary, and when he died, she moved his remains to the south of France. And you can see them today in an ancient Egyptian crypt in the south of France. Like, these are serious things. These aren't those, like, lifetime things that you laugh at every once in a while. These are serious documentaries that have gotten the attention of major news outlets, like the big four or five. Right? They get coverage. They're taken seriously. 2012, the Jesus family tomb. This is one of the biggest ones. It's this argument that they found in 1980 a family tomb that had names in it, including Jesus, that had all these names of various people that died that would have been a part of Jesus' family. Never mind the fact that those were really common names. Right? And so the, the saying goes like this. When Jesus died, his body was, by the disciples, taken stolen from the original tomb and was hidden in this family tomb. And that's why the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. Right? And they have now found this tomb. The archaeological secular community has come out against this film. The people that were interviewed in it have gone on record saying that they were misrepresented in the film. But every single year, 2013, The Unbelievers, that was around Christmas time, that was Richard Dawkins. 2015, Killing Jesus, Bill O'Reilly. 2019, that one wasn't necessarily awful, but one of the things it did is it focused so much on the death and didn't get into any miracles of Jesus, right? So it was this weird hyper-focus on the man 
2019, Bible conspiracies. Jesus was just a Greek philosopher. 2019, Jesus, the hidden history. Amazon Prime. Amazon's getting into the game now, too. And last year, the hidden story of Jesus Christ. This one is telling us that Jesus' story, this idea of the Messiah, the Savior that took the sin of the world, was just, it was a very common mythical kind of story in the ancient Near East. And there's countless tellings of ones just like it. Please find them for me. I have not been able to. And I looked way too long this week. Ask my family how often I was gone trying to find these things. Right? We, as a world, obsess about the resurrection, even those who do not believe it for one second. And I think that's interesting. Right? Why? Why, do, why does the world do it? Why do they care so much to disprove the resurrection? Because it is the most paramount piece of theological and historical truth of the entire Christian faith, as we'll get into today. This morning, there's no fancy sermon. There's no clever anecdote. There's no joke that will make everybody somehow come to know Jesus, both in the room and online, that doesn't already. I think every year there's this pressure on Easter sermons to be this, this unique, creative thing. And I find that odd because... The most unique and creative thing that has ever happened in the history of the world is what we're talking about today. Why on earth would we try to embellish it anymore through some kind of grandiose storytelling? So this morning, we're going to do just three things. We're going to answer three questions. Number one, what happened and how did it happen during the resurrection of Christ? Number two, how can we trust that it happened? How can we believe and trust that the resurrection was actually true, and why does it even matter? Right? Believe it or not, there are, there are people in the Christian world that, that question the resurrection of Jesus. Why is it so important? Hopefully, many of us know at least some semblance of an answer to that. Number three, what are the implications of the resurrection? Because it was true, and because we can demonstrate that it's true, and because it's important, well, what happens as a result of the fact that Jesus rose on that day thousands of years ago? What does it mean for us? What did it mean for the people and the disciples of that time? And how do we go forward when we get up out of our seats and walk through those two double doors in the back because of the reality of what we're celebrating this morning? That's our goal. And for the first question, I would invite you to stand up and read from God's word. Um, we are going to read, I'm going to read because it's really long, and again, we will be here forever, the entirety of John 20. There are times where it's better to hear God's word than mine. Really, any time. But here we go. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had, been, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, 
She stood, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He hid himself from her because, you know, he can rise from the dead so he can do that. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them. And Jesus came, and so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But Mary stood weeping. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's a lot there. Let's unpack some of it. Jesus is dead. He is in the tomb. And the disciples have gone into semi-hiding. Right? The mission has failed. The experiment is over. Their, their teacher is gone, and they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They have no idea what they're doing, but they're deathly afraid because chances are, if the Messiah was killed, they're going to come for them next. Right? And so you picture the disciples, and not just the 12, but the, well, minus Judas, who's run, but the, those who are following Jesus, kind of the multitudes, they're all kind of scattered and hiding and confused. Just imagine the scene of this one who you've known to be God himself, having been put in the tomb. You've devoted the last three years plus of your life to following this guy. And it's gone. It's all over. He wasn't who he said he was. You were betrayed. 
And now they're coming for your head. And so they're in hiding. They think, you know, their Messiah has been murdered. It was over for them. And Mary is in the morning going to the tomb, most likely to mourn. If you remember when we talked a few weeks ago about the death of Lazarus, we looked at Jewish burial customs and how long of a process the mourning of a dead loved one was, right? There was days upon days where you would don sackcloth and ashes and have various ways of mourning. And so it's just natural that she would go to the tomb in order to mourn the loss of the Savior. And when she gets there, it's empty. And we read that and go, yes, the tomb, the stone is rolled away they're really no less terrified than they were before because Mary assumes that the body had been taken away. And she doesn't know who did it. She doesn't know if it was friend or foe. She just knows the body was there and it's not there. And so she's trying to figure out what to do. And so she runs to get the disciples. And, and just as an aside, all right, I love this. Jesus allows a woman to be the first to see the empty tomb. And this isn't about feminism in any way whatsoever, but it's to suggest this. In that time, women were property. Their testimony was insignificant. But yet the Lord sees fit that she is the first. Right? God is not worried so much about the self-righteous religious leaders. He's worried about the least of these. And at that time, women were the least of these in a lot of ways. Right? Just to name a few. Right? The idea that they, their testimony... It took, I think, it took multiple women to make up for the testimony of one man. You were literally told as, as a female that you were kind of half human, half a person. Right? But yet she is the first that gets to see the empty tomb. And she's the first to get something else later. We'll see that in just a second. She runs back and she tells the disciples and said, hey, Jesus' body is gone. And so Peter and John start taking off running. And they, I, I love this part. If you remember anything about Peter, Peter is the strong-headed, do-first-think-later guy. Right? He's the guy that when Jesus is walking on water, I want to get out and walk too. He's the guy that whenever Jesus' ear gets cut off, or whenever they come after Jesus, he goes, goes and just slices the ear, and Jesus says, wait, hold it, and puts it back. Right? He's the head first guy, and so they're running to the tomb, and John beats him there. But John's a scaredy cat. John gets to the entrance, and he kind of peeks. Right? Peter's behind him, but you picture Peter just, ah, just runs right in. Like, no abandon whatsoever. He just bolts into the tomb, and he sees. And there's something else that's interesting. If you look at verse 5 and verse 6, there's a cool Greek wordplay here. In verse 5, when John gets to the tomb and peeks in, it says that he sees, you know, the, the, the empty tomb there. And the word for see in Greek is blepo. It's the most common word for see. It just literally means, like, see with your eyes. Like, I blepo a car driving by, right? But then later in verse 8, when he comes in after Peter, and they see kind of how everything was neatly laid it says, oida, he sees, which is a seeing and believing, like, a, oh, I see it now, right? So they get it. They're in the tomb, and they realize, right, this, wasn't, this wasn't a quick theft, or this wasn't a quick move. Like, the grave, the, the clothes are laying exactly how they would be if he was here. It's like he almost just, like, vanished out from under the clothes. And then the, the cloth that was covering his head, it was neatly folded, and put right where the head was. This isn't how it would have looked if they would have just taken the body away. Those things would probably still be on him, first of all. They would just be an empty tomb with nothing in it. And so they see, and it says they saw and they believed. And so then we get to verse 11. The disciples are all together. Mary's still weeping at the tomb. 
They've gone back. They're hiding out or doing whatever it is that they do. And all of a sudden, she sees two angels sitting at the ends of Jesus' you know, where his feet and where his head would be when she walks in. And they're, they're, they're standing there, they're sitting there, and she's lamenting to them. And she turns around and sees, she sees Jesus, but she can't tell who he is because he's disguising himself somehow from her. She thinks he's a gardener. And then he makes himself known, and she cries out, Rabbani, which means teacher. And it's a beautiful scene. Again, Mary is the first one that gets to actually see Jesus. Right? Sorry, guys. But here's what's neat about this. There's more to this scene than meets the eye. Listen to what it says in Numbers 7, verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Do you see the connection yet? Speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark from between the two cherubim. Another word for that could be from between the two angels. Right? And it spoke to him. Maybe a picture will help you with this. This is what the ark of the covenant looked like. And in the, in the middle place there, right, right underneath those cherubim, in the very most special place is what we call the mercy seat. And so in the Old Testament, they would carry this around, and when they would put up the tent and the tabernacle would be set up, it would be in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy of places, where only once a year the priest could go in. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that is how atonement was made. That is the location of mercy. And so Mary comes, and she's at the tomb. There's an angel on the left and an angel on the right, at the head and of the foot. It's the new mercy seat. Does that make sense? It's where, the, it's where the center of mercy and grace and love now resides. Because it's the place where Jesus has risen from the dead. And then he makes himself known to her and he allows her to see who he is for real. Right? So she runs to the disciples, and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. And who knows what their reaction is, but that doesn't matter, and we don't have time to dig into it, because after this, what we have for the rest of 20 are two appearances of Jesus to the disciples. The first time he comes in verse 19, he comes right through. They're in there with locked doors, and all of a sudden, Jesus is just in their midst. Right? No idea how he got in there. He's just there. He just went through and he's among the disciples, and he comes and he says, peace be with you. Right? Now that the Lord has risen, there is a lasting peace. He's not saying, hey, peace be with you the way we would if we were shaking hands. He's saying, hi, I'm peace, and I'm with you. Nice to see you again. And by the way, this peace is everlasting. It's not a temporary thing. I'm back, and I'm back for good. And then he empowers them to forgive sins in his name, and he sends them like the Father sent him. And the second appearance comes eight days later, because when he showed up, Thomas wasn't there. Thomas gets a really bad rap in this resurrection passage. Right? It all happens, and they all believe, and they all cry out, you know, oh Lord, you're back. And then he, he goes away again, and Thomas shows up, and they're like, you missed it! Jesus was here! And he, all he says is, you know, I, unless I see the wounds and touch the side, I won't believe. And we say, well, well, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, here he goes again. 
But the reality is, all of the disciples that saw him the first time, what happened? He came in, he said, peace be with you. See my wounds and my hands and my feet and my side, right? He presents the evidence to them, and that's how they believe. He's no different than the others. He just didn't get to see it. And so Jesus comes back again eight days later to the disciples. And then he gives them this little, not really a reprimand, but, but a mission. And we'll get to that in a second. Have you believed because you've seen me? Verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet they have believed. This is a hint of what our response to the resurrection is going to be. More on that in a second. So that's what happened. He was dead, and he rose. And he appeared to the disciples, and he declared that peace is now among them. That there is new life. And then he sets the pattern of just as I have done in obedience to the Father, so you will do to me. And so he sets that up for them. And as a result, new life and eternal life has come to the world because Jesus is indeed risen. And that leads us to question number two. How can we trust that all of this actually happened? And why does it matter? Like I said, the credibility of the resurrection has been under attack since the moment it happened. The early church, the persecution that occurred, was mostly centered around the claim that the one that they had killed had risen. When we started witnessing to the Greeks, one of the things that they had such a hard time getting their head around was the resurrection, right? Paul is speaking to the Greek people, and they're with him until he gets to that part, and they're like, hold a second. No one can rise up from the dead, right? It's, it's the hinge point. If you believe it, then you better listen to what we do with it, right? You can't ignore the resurrection. And so from the day it occurred, there have been attacks on it. And the silly movies we talked about are just the most recent in history, right? I went back like, 15 years. This has been happening for thousands of years. And so let's look at a couple of these attacks. Because movies are funny, but every one of them is based off of just a few kind of core things that we see. And the first is this. There's a, a theory called the swoon theory. And it's that Jesus wasn't really dead. He got beaten within an inch of his life. He got hung on the cross. He was almost dead, right? They pierced his side. He had no lung strength or capacity left. He was, he was almost dead, but he wasn't dead. He passed out. And so they put him in the tomb, and it took him a couple days to, to come back to. And when he came back to, he escaped from the tomb and, and, and you know, is hiding, I don't know, in the south of France somewhere. Still to this day, who knows? Or as long as humans lived at that time and then he died of natural causes and he's probably in that 1980s family tomb. Right? That's the theory. There's a lot of problems with that theory. Number one, the soldiers pronounced Jesus dead. The soldiers of Rome were legendary killing machines. They don't miskill somebody. Right? That's why at the end when Jesus is on the cross and he, and he breathes his last and he says it is finished, before they take him down, they pierce his side because the Romans are really good at making darn sure someone they want dead is fully dead. He was killed, he was pronounced dead without a shadow of a doubt, and then he was put into the cross. Second is this. He was tortured and beaten within an inch of his life. Let's say he hadn't died. You really think with all the things that we have described have happened to Jesus that he's going to hang out with a, with a pierced lung and two days later be able to get out and roll the stone away and escape? You and I wouldn't even be able to lift a hand. It makes no sense 
that, that a man that is beaten and almost killed to that extent would somehow have the strength to be able to leave through a tomb. He was sent to Joseph of Arimathea. He was home for burial. He was prepared by a whole bunch of different people. He was adorned with hundreds of pounds of spices and at no point ever showed a sign of life. He was dead. He wasn't passed out. He wasn't swooning. He wasn't within an inch of his life. He wasn't in a coma. He was gone. And lastly this, the swoon theory really doesn't align with the ethics of Jesus. Like even, even the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw him with, for the ethical and moral teacher that he was. Jesus did things above book. He was always honest. It doesn't fit the profile of a guy to have, to have died and then somehow gotten out not really dead and hiding and, and somehow perpetuate the lie. It just doesn't line up. It would make him a deceiver. And nothing about the ministry of Jesus suggests that he would be deceived. Why, why would you do that? Just imagine the intentionality behind such a ploy. So the swoon theory holds very little weight. The second is this. It's the theft theory. His body was stolen from the grave. And there's two branches of this. Number one, the disciples stole it. Right? Or his enemies stole it. The first one makes zero, the second one makes zero sense. Why would an enemy of Jesus steal the body so that people would write? At the very least, when Christianity starts to spread and people start to say he was risen, those who are Jesus' enemy would have produced the body and said, no, he wasn't here. It makes no sense that the enemies would hide the body because they would have given birth to the greatest lie ever told and perpetuated it against their own interest. No one would do that in their right mind. And the disciples don't really make a lot of sense either. I don't know how loyal you know, the world around you is, but if you think of how many people, and if we read beyond John 20, we notice that it's not just the 12. There are countless people who saw the risen Lord who saw him walking and talking. There is no way you get that many people to lie about it, to make it up, especially with the hardship that Christians endured in the early church. Every single one of the 12 disciples died for what they believed. John was exiled to the island of Patmos before. Right? Like they, they died. Gruesome, horrible deaths for the message of the resurrection. There's no way that in all that time, not one of them comes clean under pressure. There's just not, pot, like, think of how many people that is. You're telling me there's not one coward among the Christians who, when pushed, will say, yeah, I made it up. No one. It makes no sense. And then here's the last, the made-up theory. Well, two theories. The whole thing was just made up. People brought it up. Those who win in history get to write it. And it was just made up. The problem with that is this. We have an understanding of how the scriptures and the testimonies of Jesus came together from all kinds of places over time in a way that there couldn't have been a collusion among them. Scripture is a collection of writings from so many people across so much time, all of it adding up together. There's no way that that many people could have colluded in that time to make it up. You couldn't do it today in the age of Twitter or Slack or Microsoft Teams. You certainly couldn't do it back then in the ancient Near East. There's no way this got made up and somehow perpetuated. There are too many witnesses. When the early church starts, it was the people that saw him. 
You can't make it up with that big of a group. If it had been three, maybe, but come on. And then finally, there's the hallucination theory. It's the idea that everyone at the time, the early church, the Christians that were there after, after Jesus died, they all hallucinated it. This one's actually medically disprovable. If you talk to experts um, in that field, they will tell you a couple of things. Number one, group hallucination, especially of that size, is, is almost impossible, if not extremely rare. In the few times you do have that level of group hallucination, it's usually induced by a group participation of consuming various drugs that cause that hallucination. Right? You have a history of cults that consume copious amount of drugs together and hallucinate together. Uh, you know, the 70s were probably full of groups that did that for some time. But the last piece of medical thing is this. If you have, happen to have a rare instance of hallucination, if that just so happens that you can have that many people at the same time without drugs hallucinating, it has never happened that they hallucinate the same thing. When we've seen medical instances of mass group hallucination, they all see different stuff. It's not the same story because their brains aren't connected. It makes no sense that all those people would hallucinate. Every movie, every attempt to unearth the tomb of Jesus and show his body has failed and fallen short. The resurrection happened. And here's the most important piece of it. Maybe you're listening to this in here or online and you're going, Vince, you're not a scientist. You throw some theories at me, but that doesn't convince me. Well, you know, I'm not really trying to. Because in the end, you have to believe the resurrection or choose to disregard it. There's no earthly scientific evidence that I'm going to have that's going to convince you to believe that about 2,000 years ago, a man went to the grave and then rose from the dead again. And I don't want to. And I don't think we're called to. We're called to, to testify and to witness to the resurrection. And if you're convinced it happened, then we get to the next part of why does it matter. Inside the Christian community, why does it matter? It's the most important aspect of the Christian faith. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we can all go home. As a matter of fact, if you believe, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, please go home. You are wasting your time. Because every piece of the Christian faith crumbles at the idea that Jesus didn't actually rise from the grave. It is the hinge point. It is what makes everything worth it. If, if it didn't happen, I can quit. I can go make a lot of money doing some other thing that I don't care if it's moral because God's not real, right? Every single part of Scripture hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the thing that matters. It is, in the end, the only thing that matters. Jesus died and he rose. He did. Outside the Christian community, we push against these attempts to discredit it because God tells us to do so. And this gets us to our third question. What are the implications for us today? And there's two. Remember, we're still in a series on John and the signs of John's gospel. Even though we don't have the gloomy background up because I don't put black backgrounds on Easter Sunday. I refuse. Right? But we're still in that series. We're finishing it up today. The resurrection, according to John... It's not just the greatest miracle to have ever occurred. It's the greatest sign. 
If this is the first time you're here, and on Easter we have a whole lot of folks who haven't been here for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the signs of Jesus in John's Gospel. We've been looking at the various things that he does, and John's Gospel is written in such a way where his miracles that you probably heard about a hundred times, they're not just miracles to show how awesome he is, but all of them point to something about him. Every single miracle that Jesus performs, according to John, has a message that is attached to it, right? And so he heals the blind person. He says, I am the light of the world. He raises Lazarus from the dead and says, I am the resurrection of the life. And he does it as a preview of the ultimate miracle of resurrecting oneself. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so for John, the implication is this. If Jesus rose, then so will we rise. Because Jesus rose from the dead, if you submit your life to Christ and you are under him, and you are sitting under the mercy and grace of Christ on the new mercy seat, then when you breathe your last, it is not your last. You will follow Jesus in death on this earth, and you will follow him in life eternal. That's the sign. He did it to set the trend. Yes, Jesus is a trendsetter. We follow in that pattern. We will rise and when we know that we will rise, and when we believe that the resurrection has occurred, and when we have a confidence in it, everything else in this world becomes secondary. Everything becomes secondary. Second implication. The Lord calls us to witness to the resurrection. If you believe it, then you're called to witness to it. Earlier I mentioned verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The Christian faith is, not meant, is meant to be spread through witness. He sets a pattern here again. Look again at the final verses of John 20. This is John's kind of why did I write all this stuff. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, what you've been reading for the past few weeks and today, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. We are called to be a witness to the resurrection. You have no higher purpose in life. Whatever your agenda says is due in the next week, it is underneath witness to the resurrection. That's not a request. It's a demand. To be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to be under him, to be affected by his death and resurrection, and to be able to follow that pattern, he tells us the way that people will know that weren't there is through our witness. The Lord could come every Easter, right? We could have like a Skype phone call with Jesus every year where he says, hey, I'm here, and he shows himself to everybody in this world, and then they all believe that's not what he chose to do. He chose to make his kingdom spread and be known by using us. He doesn't need us, but he chose to use us. And so the early church explodes because the people went and witnessed and testified to the resurrection that occurred. And that is what we are called to do as well. As the only calling you have, everything you do and in every way you move and live and have your being, you are called to be a testimony to the resurrection and the reality that Jesus was dead and he's not anymore. You are to testify to it. You are to defend it. You are to uphold it. You are to make sure your children know it and their children know it. That's your job. Everything else is secondary.
And so our challenge for today is really simple. It's a response of obedience. If Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, you possess the greatest gift of grace and mercy possible on this earth. You've been given eternal life. You've been told that you will follow the footsteps of Jesus to death and to life ever after. Tell people. Tell people. There's a really famous magician um, named Penn Teller. Um, many of you know Penn and Gillette Teller. They're a magician couple. He's kind of a larger guy. His, his, his partner is small and never talks. Right? Um, I don't know if you know this, but Penn, Penn is a very avowed atheist. Um, very, very outspoken atheist. He's written on the subject, talks about it. Um, I remember years and years ago, this is one of the things that most shook me in life when I, when I, when I saw it. I saw an interview that he gave, um, and they asked him about how he responds to people that try to convert him to Christ. And I'm like waiting for the, well, you know, I wish they would stop, and just, you know, I try to, you know, he's a comedian magician, so he probably makes fun of them. Or, and he said, oh, I respect the heck out of them. I always listen. I always appreciate it. Okay. He said, you know, if I had a friend who was in the street and there was a bus coming at him, and I said, hey, there's a bus. And the friend said, no, there isn't. And the bus kept coming. I said, no, but there's the bus. And he said, no, there isn't. There's a point, if I knew that his life was on the line, there's a point where I don't care about his feelings. I'm going to grab the guy by the collar and I'm going to yank him back. And if you are a Christian, he's like, I, he's a, I know that God's not real. I know he's not real. I'm convinced of it. But if you are a Christian, how cruel do you have to be to believe what you believe and not go out and tell everyone? He said, if I did believe in Jesus, you couldn't shut me up about it. Because if I believed that my friends and it was a matter of life and death, man, you got to be really, really cruel not to, to share that. And I got my butt handed to me that day by an atheist. So this morning when we get up and we go home, we sit with our families, and tomorrow we go back to work and you know, we, we come together today and we have a beautiful feast and we eat our lamb cakes or whatever tasty treats it is that you have at home. Are we going to make it about that? Or are we going to think of how this week we can be a testimony to the resurrection of Christ? The truth is this. In the next 24 hours, every one of you will encounter people you know, many of which you love, who do not know Jesus. And it is a matter of life and death. I hope that the Holy Spirit convicts you of that. Because I can't convict you of that on my own. I don't have the power. Man, I wish I did, but I don't. May you go out this week as a testimony to the risen Christ. May that be the thing that you are about. May that be the purpose of your life the single aim and the single goal. May every financial decision, every calendar decision, every family decision, every parenting decision you make be centered on the fact that we are witnesses to the resurrection because he is risen. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that today we celebrate that you have risen from the grave, Lord, that you, in the love and compassion for your people, even though we were sinners and do not deserve it, came to this earth and lived a sing simple, beautiful, sinless life so that we could have that as an example, so that you could know what it means to be human, so that when we say, Lord, you don't know what I'm going through, you can say, yes, I do, I've been there. 
And at the end of that ministry, you, in faithful obedience to the Father, went to be arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified and killed on the cross. Only to three days later, rise again and conquer death once and for all. And Lord, we pray not just for the joy of today, but for the ultimate joy when you are coming back because you will return, not as a meek guy riding on a donkey, but in glory. To thwart all evil and to restore the world once and for all. Lord, we long for that day where you will be our God and we will be your people and we get to walk among you once again with the sin of this world removed. That is our hope. That is what everything we do and believe in and pray for hinges on. As we go out this morning, we ask that you empower us and equip us and strengthen us to be about the business of testifying to your resurrection because it's all that matters. We love you and we praise you. And all together his people said, Amen.